Let's take our Bibles and turn tonight to 1 Kings, 1 Kings 21. To another, perhaps, of the more familiar stories of the Elijah narrative, that of Naboth's vineyard, which in many ways we see that focus certainly still here on Elijah being used of God to call out Ahab and in turn Jezebel for their sin. And yet what we see now very plainly is is this foil between Naboth and Ahab. It shows Ahab for who he really is, even at this point in his reign yet, but also then of what faithfulness was to look like. That is, Elijah had been assured, there are 7,000 here who have not knelt the knee to Baal, who have not given themselves to him. There was still faithfulness to be found. And yet that was a faith that would be persecuted. It's a faith then that is showed to be martyred for, even in this text. And so while maybe not in the classical sense of that, still being put to death for his trust in the promise, for his trust in that which God had given to him. And so an Elijah coming, even then, to the most vile of sinners, ultimately, as we see in that description here, what we're provided then with is the wonder of trust, trusting that God will work, Trusting that God can call even the vilest of sinners to himself. And so let's hear these words together. 1 Kings 21, and we'll take for our consideration the entire chapter this evening. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, give me your vineyard, that I may have it for a vegetable garden because it is near my house. And I will give you a better vineyard for it, or if it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. And Ahab went into his house vexed and sullen because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him. For he said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, Why is your spirit so vexed that you can eat no food? And he said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else, if it please you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. And Jezebel, his wife, said to him, Do you now govern Israel? Arise and eat bread, and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal, and she sent letters to the elders and leaders who lived with Naboth in his city. And she wrote in the letters, proclaim a fast, and set Naboth at the head of the people, and set two worthless men opposite him, and let them bring a charge against him, saying, you have cursed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. And the men of his city, the elders and the leaders who lived in his city, did as Jezebel had sent word to them. As it was written in the letters that she had sent to them, they proclaimed a fast and sent Naboth at the head of the people. And the two worthless men came in and sat opposite him. And the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. Then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned, he is dead. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive but dead. And as soon as Ahab heard that Naboth Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite to take possession of it. 
Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, Have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, In the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick your own blood. Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? He answered, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up and will cut you off, cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah, for the anger to which you have provoked me and because you have made Israel to sin. And of Jezebel, the Lord also said, the dog shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dog shall eat, and any one of his who dies in the open country, the birds of the heaven shall eat. There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. And when Ahab heard those words, he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days, but in his son's days, I will bring the disaster upon his house. Thus far the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, you bring us before a hard word to listen to, certainly one that is very much graphic, one that lays out for us the sinfulness of sin and the rejection of your promise, the rejection of your word, the rejection of leading a people in ways of righteousness and justice. And yet even into the midst of that, you show yourself merciful in sending your prophet to speak the truth but also, Lord, to bring conviction. And we thank you, Father, in that way, even in this text, even for a small time that was known. And so, Father, we thank you for your mercies in sending your word into these days that we live in, seemingly full of injustice, of a warped understanding of your word, of selfishness beyond measure, of sin of every sort a context in which the righteous are called to live by faith. And we need to trust that you will do your work in your way and in your time. And even if we suffer all things, even unto death for the same, you will be faithful to care for us. And so, Lord, you know throughout this whole week, the struggles of, of coming to this word, Father, of needing to speak a word in season to this people that you have prepared. And so, Father, would you use my words. May they be your words. May they speak to each heart. And, Father, may you call us then to a greater and deeper trust and dependence upon you. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Children of God called to be saints, as we come again to understand more of the person of Ahab, certainly we hear of the Naboth and we'll get there, but as we keep coming to Ahab, 
we keep coming to one who within the understanding of the context in which he was born into and was to be raised into, was to be one that ought not to be that different than ours, at least in an understanding of the covenant upbringing that we were to be raised in. That thinking about that even this morning in terms of baptism and this need to, to continually be speaking into the lives of our children the truth of the word and the truth of that law. That we think about Deuteronomy 6 verse 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord are six. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. These words I command shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise, binding them, keeping them, putting them on the house and on the gates. That the law of God in the midst of the people of Israel should have been that thing that, that in many ways was a given. We always talk about it. We always know it. We figure out how to apply it. Of how we are to place our trust in the Lord, even in seeking to be faithful to that word. And while that was certainly true for the rank and file, for every person who was to be a citizen under God's authority, it was especially true for the kings. That the law was to be their meditation. That the kings were to write out their own copies of that law to keep it before them. That they would always return to it. That they would never be taken by surprise by its claim and call. But that it would always be there in the way that they spoke, in the way that they interacted, in an understanding of their office, but also in an understanding of the God that they served. That the kings were commanded in Deuteronomy 17 Verse 19, it shall be with him. He shall, excuse me, verse 18, when he sits on the throne of the kingdom, he shall write for himself a book, a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it in all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord as God by keeping all the words of the law and these statutes and doing them that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. That was to be the goal. That was always to be the perspective. And that's why when we consider the story before us, this accounting of Naboth's vineyard, of Ahab's lust after it, what are you doing, man? As one set apart, anointed king over Israel, who now has gone through all of the humiliation and humbling, that all the prophets of Baal are dead, that he has been shown to be impotent, that the Lord he is God, that the Lord he is God. That there is still a hardening to that which God had called him to. That he is very much in that sense the anti-king. Even in the description later on in this text, the most anti of the king. And yet it becomes a warning for us, does it not? That if we are not going to be a people continuing to give ourselves to the word and way of the Lord, to his law and to his promise, then these kinds of actions that seem absolutely over the top and unbelievable to us really become very quickly to be not so, at least in the minds of many. 
that even in our own day, the number of things that are abominations that are abominable, where there are those who even seek to take the name Christian and to seek to prove those things right. And so on first reading, we look at this text and say, but pastor, it's just a vineyard. It's just a piece of land that the king wants. The Lord had warned Israel, you put a king over yourself like the other nations, this is what's going to happen. He's going to take your land, he's going to take your food, he's going to take your kids. This was what was going to happen. But yet it's more than that. Because what it shows to us very plainly is the injustice that abounded in Israel. Even amongst those again being called upon by a covenant name yet. But also then for those who had given themselves to the Lord. Who look at that and say, Lord, what's going on? Are you in control over these things at all? Of being able to look that we have a comfort in life and in death. That if it comes to that bit of death, we recognize, Lord, you will avenge us. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And so will that be our trust in holding on to that law? Again, a law fulfilled in Christ, but a law of gratitude that we're called to. To an obedience to that word. Are we going to be willing before the world, no matter what they may seek to take, no matter what they may seek to do, that we will stay firm in the conviction that our Lord is a covenant-keeping God and that he will defend me and care for me always. And so we see that, that very real separation of of the hearts of those in this story, of the place of God's work in all of it, by taking a look at then, as our sermon title is there, annexation, which means just taking over a land, and humiliation of needing to bring Ahab to the end of himself. And so we want to look first in the first 16 verses at the injustice of a forbidden annexation. This ought never to have happened but also then at the justice of a bidden, of an asked-for humiliation. The injustice of a forbidden annexation and the justice of a bidden humiliation. But that injustice then comes simply from a very simple tale. Verse 1, Now Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab king of Samaria. They're neighbors. This is a simple neighbor thing. And the grass really looks greener there, or at least the vineyard does. And look how convenient this would be to have this right next to my house. And, oh, it's, it's already developed and it's great. And, well, I should be able to have that. But what does it say there? Naboth had a vineyard. There's possession involved. And so Ahab comes, and at least in the first, a very reasonable way. And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden because it is near my house and I will give you a better vineyard for it. I will give you a transaction. I'm entering into this. I am not demanding on the way of my kingship what I could simply take over. Let's trade. Or if it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. Again, the words seeming like a nod to 1 Samuel 8, 14. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. But yet he's saying, I'll give you what you want. But I want that. 
I must have that. And yet, why is he looking there in the first place? You are king of Israel. Everything is yours. The Lord has given you all of your place and all of that. Even though you've denied it, it's yours. He's looking over at what a neighbor has. And already here, we start to hear some echoes of David not going off to war when he should have and looking over at that which was his neighbor's. You see, this is the way, sadly, of the sinful kings of Israel. The good ones, but also, in this case, the not-so-good ones. And so it leaves us then, at least at that point, in tension. Or at least questioning in our own minds, what do we do? What's to be done? What was to be done among someone faithful in Israel? And Naboth speaks that. Verse 3, the Lord forbid that I should give you, and hear it, the inheritance of my fathers. Because on the one hand, Naboth turns down the deal of the century. If we're negotiating this thing, he can get the best of whatever he wants. The leverage is his. But yet, as Dale Ralph Davis writes, quote, his thinking was covenantal rather than pragmatic, end quote. And you're like, hmm? What did the land mean to the Israelites? The land was a gift. The land was the blessing of God's covenant in bringing them there and to that place. Naboth knows that this land is the Lord's inheritance, why he recognizes, gave you the inheritance of my fathers. He's already making the link. His land was always to point him and his children and their children's children's children to a better inheritance in a better country. It was to point them to the Lord and the greater promised inheritance of a Messiah who would deliver them from their sins. Every place they put their feet was to speak to them of Abraham and Isaac and Israel. To a covenant-keeping God faithful to his law and to his promise. God forbid that I give this to you. And certainly there were ways in the law in terms of leasing the land if you were in a way where you didn't have any money and you needed to be cared for and yet that would be released to you later in Jubilee years. There were all kinds of ways in which we try to tax accountant this thing out. But this is not that. Naboth will not sell the land on the basis of the law and promise. Leviticus 25, 23, the land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine. For you are strangers and sojourners with me. So in that way, it wasn't theirs, it was always the Lord's. For a purpose, a gift for a reason. You shall hold on to the inheritance of the tribes of your fathers. Numbers 36, 7. And yet the foil in this narrative is that Naboth should have never been the one who had to stand up for this. It should have been Ahab. One who knew the law. One who was supposed to write out the law. One who is to be righteous as the Lord's anointed. This request should have never been made. But now, for righteousness' sake, and that testimony is righteous even though it will be warped later, Naboth will be persecuted for righteousness' sake. 
as he continues to prove more righteous than Ahab. And so Ahab went into his house, verse 4, vexed and sullen because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. Naboth speaks truth to Ahab and he has a fit. What do you mean I can't have what I want in the way that I want it? But Jezebel came to him and said, why not? Why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food? But now here, in the brokenness and hardness of Ahab's heart, how he responds. Hear the difference. Because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite and said to him, give me your vineyard for money or else if it pleases you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, and hear the answer. He won't even speak truth to Jezebel. I will not give you my vineyard. It's true, but only half truth. Inheritance of my fathers. Ahab, you've left it. That's something that doesn't even compute for you as king of Israel. He hadn't spoken the truth. And now in the way that the evil one always works, and even here in this narrative in Jezebel, we start to see that working, right? Can you eat of any of the trees of the garden? Of any tree we can eat, but not that one. We must not touch it lest we die. Is it all the truth? And now what does the evil one say? You can have it. You're you're not going to surely die. David, she's a pretty girl over there. You should have whatever you want. You can hide it up later. You can cover it later. That's the sinfulness of sin for us. That in not holding to the word and not keeping that law before us, Now here's the attack, and here's the attack. And all of a sudden, now we've dismissed the truth, and we've made a different way. And it's not a good one. We hear the churning of the temptation extended. You're being kept from something that is yours, something that is good. Take it up and eat. Be glad even because I will give it to you. I will give you the desire of your heart. Ahab, I will give you to have what is not yours. It is a way of sin. It is the way of brokenness of the law. It is selfish. It is callous. It gives no regard to consequence or judgment, only to immediate gratification. And if that is what you are given to in your life at any point, and you continue to give yourself to that, it only leads to death. And it leads to it very really here. But sadly not for Ahab. And yet what does Jezebel do in twisting the truth? Now she wants to play the religion card. Proclaim a fast because Naboth is righteous. And he will come. Set him to that religious place of leadership. Because he's probably one of the only ones in Jezreel who's being faithful. Proclaim that fast and then warp that judgment. Set two worthless men opposite him and let them bring a charge against him saying, you have cursed God and the king. How did he curse God? The Lord forbid. Oh, did you hear what he said? Did he use the Lord's name in vain? He has spoken evil of the king because he hasn't given him what he wants. It's twisted. 
And yet, Ahab, what have you done? You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, but that's what you've done. The law that was to be on your heart is no longer on your heart. It perhaps never was on your heart. Exodus 23, 7, keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and righteous for I will not acquit the the wicked. But it's gone on. Jezebel has done these things, but it's his seal. It's his name. And yet it's worse than that. Look with me again at verse 11. And the men of his city, the elders and the leaders who lived in his city, did as Jezebel had sent word to them. It's bad enough that sinners in authority continue to spin things in this way. But when those people who are ruled over will not submit to righteousness, will not roll, who just roll over, it's just the way it is. What can we do about it? What does faithfulness matter anyway? This is when darkness comes. When we complain about how dark things are or how less salty things are now, that isn't the world, that's us. They feared the king and queen. They feared man more than an almighty covenant-keeping God. To paraphrase another commentator, injustice flourishes by wickedness and weakness, not just from a lack of goodness, but also the lack of guts. Is that where we're found today, people of God? Speaking of goodness, but having no guts to back it up. Proclaiming that wickedness is all around us, but weakly following and trusting. So they did it. And these two worthless men in verse 13, the word here is Belial, a term that means without worth and wicked men. It's the reference in 2 Corinthians 6.15. What accord has Christ with Belial? Here's the separation. Here's the brokenness. You have to pick a side. It is good or evil. It is not gray. It is not both. Choose this day. What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? And the worthless men bring the charge. And they took him outside and they stoned him. A mock representation of obedience to the law, killing him outside the camp. And they send the news, Naboth is dead. They put to death a righteous man. Filling up in his life then with the sufferings of Christ. Hearing overtones of that suffering servant, Isaiah 53. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And so ultimately in here, what we need is a better righteous man. What we need is one who is able to righteous, but also able to deliver. That Naboth isn't the Messiah, but even in the story, he speaks of him and points us to him. And yet as soon as Jezebel hears, she goes and tells Ahab. And as soon as Ahab hears, he goes to take possession. He doesn't announce it. Let's just go take it. Let's send in the evening for Bathsheba and let's bring her to make her my wife and think it's going to be okay with the Lord. 
This annexation was wrong in every way. This murder was wrong in every way. But Ahab will have no time to enjoy it. Children, sometimes you'll hear people use the term about stolen watermelon being sweet. And it's only so for a time, but then it would make you sick to your stomach because it wasn't yours. You're seeking to enjoy something that was never yours to begin with. And that's writ large in this story. There is injustice in it. It's not yours. And yet for one who was king, he has sinned in his discontent. He has sinned as a silent bystander. He has sinned in forsaking another. He sinned against the law. Guilty of the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. Guilty of the ninth commandment, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Guilty of the tenth commandment, you shall not covet. And that's before he broke all, one, two, three, and four, all of them in the bail account. And if he has stumbled at just one point, he is guilty of breaking all of it. Sin brings death. Sin brings condemnation. You will not get away with your sin. And that's why we need the rest of the story. Your sin will be found out. God will work justice against the unjust, and we have to trust that. Certainly we don't want injustice, and we do and work and serve for the fact that that would not happen. But as we consider all of the martyrs, those killed in the persecuted church, Lord, have you been with them? Will you work justice for them? He will. He will. But sinner then, you have every reason to fear falling into the hands of an almighty holy God who knows you inside and out. Matthew 10, 28, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both the soul and body in hell. Hebrews 4, 13, and no creature is hidden from his sight but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And so be given to that law. Let no injustice be a part of your own narrative. Be willing, even when suffering is real, to be given to that law. And yet here, the Lord will not allow injustice, injustice to go unpunished. And so it leads us to the justice of a bidden humiliation. For it says in Luke 18, 7, And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? Naboth's blood cries out for justice. That God in drawing near to Cain, where is your brother? Am I my brother's keeper? His blood cries out to me. The Lord seeks justice for the oppressed. The omniscient God sees all things, including the thoughts and intentions of the hearts. He will work justice for the oppressed. But I think it's here in the narrative where we struggle because, God, why didn't you save Naboth? If that was unjust, if that was wrong, then why did you allow that? Lord, why did you allow your son to be killed at the hands of wicked men? Why do you allow bad things to happen to good people? 
we look at injustice and say we live in a broken world. And terrible things happen. And we can't give a reason for it always. Other than we trust in the will and way of the Lord. And we will submit to him knowing that he works justice for the oppressed. He does so because the working of salvation and judgment and deliverance are his to accomplish. And so the blood of Naboth here does cry out to God. Injustice does cry out to God. That we hear it in the Exodus account where God saw and it says and he knew. He always knows. He knows where you're at. He knows what you're going through. And yet God will defend us even as he defends Naboth in his name and defends his people caring for his own and bringing and working justice because he is holy. Gathering them according to the promise of Hebrews 12, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in festal gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And it's in that way then that the Lord says, Elijah, go. Verse 17, the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, look, he's still there. He's at the scene of the crime yet, where he has gone to take possession. The Lord saw and he did know. Nothing that has been done by Ahab and Jezebel or these worthless wicked men has escaped him. Look, you're going to find Ahab exactly where I've said taking possession of what doesn't belong to him. And you shall say, thus says the Lord, have you killed and also taken possession. The Lord through Elijah will bring that charge immediately. There is no need to examine or cross-examine. Here is Ahab's guilt. Here is the charge against him. Thus says the Lord, now the sentence. In the place where the dogs licked up the blood of Naboth shall dogs lick up your own blood. I remember what was done to my servant Naboth and you will face the same end. I will work justice for those you have oppressed in your wickedness. There will be a reckoning. Here the Lord comes powerfully in working justice, speaking the truth, speaking the law, and now what does Ahab say? Have you found me out, O enemy? We're opposite sides here. We're opposed here. That in a sense, he's confessing his disbelief. How have you found me out? He couldn't have been found out in that time and in that space and place apart from the hand of the Lord. And yet consider how sinful man lashes out against and treats those who bring the law of God to bear against sinfulness. You're my enemy. You hate me. You don't support me. You talk hate speech. That's the way of this world. That's the way of a hardened sinner like Ahab. And yet God sought Ahab out. It's remarkable. This man, as vile and unjust as he is, God sought him out, sending Elijah to seek him out. It's mercy. 
And so when faithful men and women come to you, come to your life to bring conviction before you in terms of sin, they are not your enemy. It may not be pleasant. No discipline is pleasant. But they are a godsend to you. Because in the curse of our sin, we need to be brought to the reality of what we've done and what we deserve apart from the grace and mercy of Almighty God. And so Elijah tells the truth. I have found you because you've sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. You sold yourself for what? For a piece of property with some nice shade? What have you done? You made a deliberate choice to give yourself over to your sin. And now Elijah speaks for God in declaring his sure-to-be judgment, which is sure-to-be in the book of 2 Kings. I will bring disaster on you. I will burn you up. I will cut you off. I will make your house like Jeroboam and Baasha. You've risen the rank of the terrible kings, and you are number one. For the anger to which you have provoked me, God's holiness, you have not loved me, And because you've made Israel to sin, you have not loved neighbor. Fire is consuming curse. Everything of this earth removed except your reputation for wickedness, forever linked to the worst of the kings. And for your wife, she too, the dog shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel, coming true in 2 Kings 9, Even as the Lord is faithful to Psalm 9, for he who avenges blood is mindful of them, he does not forget the cry of the afflicted. And then in our text is probably the most terrible epitaph in much of the Old Testament scriptures. That we look children and say, how do we want people to write for us? Or or even as older ones, maybe already start thinking about obituaries that they've had to write for others or write for themselves. What's going to be written? What's going to be remembered? There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, whose Jezebel his wife incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. It's the most terrible write-up ever. But it was true. If you think back through all the kings to this point, Saul And David, the divided kingdoms, Jeroboam who caused Israel to sin, not one would compare to Ahab. Wretched and vile, a wretched and vile king that the text consistently screams, what, Israel, you need a better king. You need a king faithful to the law in every way. A king who works justice and righteousness for the oppressed. A king who will not sin and whose reign will reign forever. They needed Christ. And yet something remarkable is heard at the end of this text. Which should make us mindful of the mercy of the Lord, but also trust that he will work. Even through the faithful call of his people. Even when you sit and say, is it worth bringing up again? Is it worth insisting on the law again? Is it worth having that fight with my kid again about what God's law says? Is it worth standing for faithfulness, for light in this dark and perverse world? Yes, amen, yes. And yes, and yes, and yes.
Because what does the Lord work through his call through Elijah? And when Ahab heard those words, he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. Ahab was broken and contrite, and the Lord doesn't despise it. In fact, God forestalls his judgment in a desire that Ahab would come to real repentance. But he doesn't. But that doesn't mute the praise here. That doesn't mute the joy here. Yes, this repentance is momentary. Open up 1 Kings 22 and you see it laid bare. Here comes the end. But that doesn't change the nature of the Lord. That doesn't change His desire in the proclamation of His Word. Because the Lord, the Lord is a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. That even in Ezekiel 33, it says, Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? It was worth it. That that response, though limited, was worth it. And the prophet wasn't to forget it. That we, his people, are not to forget it. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, Have you seen? Have you seen it? Have you seen how Ahab humbled himself before me? He's saying it's real. Those times where we see our children broken, or those in sin when they come and they're broken, and they come and they want to be restored again. There is joy in it. That is the joy of the Father. Don't lose that. Don't become jaded. It's not real. It's just momentary. It's not going to... Rejoice with your Father. Rejoice in the wonder of those who do turn. And so he pauses that judgment. I'll bring it in the days of his sons. And he does. Because he's just. He is certainly merciful, but he's also just. And he's the same God today. That if we are claiming those things that are not ours, living for sin, that's injustice, it leads to brokenness, it leads to death. But he bids you to humble yourself before him. To give yourself to his law in Christ. To give yourself to a good and gracious king and a strong almighty Lord in every way of submission, in every way of holiness. Continuing to call you to live that way before an unbelieving world. Knowing that he's continuing to call sinners to repentance. And that in speaking the truth in love he may use you in that faithfulness. To call back those living in darkness. Believe it. Trust in that and live in that. Give yourself to that good King Jesus. To the law that he has filled you with his spirit. That is which is written in your heart that you would know it. And find life, abundant life in him.
Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and its call upon us. And Father, this story is so broken in many ways and yet extraordinary. Because Father, you uphold justice for Naboth. You bring justice to bear upon Ahab and Jezebel. You bring your prophet once more before beholding the ways that you are merciful and kind. And it's all in one narrative. You can't separate any of it out from the other. And so, Lord, as we consider our lives in this way, Lord, we know brokenness, but also hope. We see injustice, but we also know that you fight for justice and you call us to the same. Father, we see rulers over us who do not give themselves to your word and your law, but you call us to continue to live that way. And Father, in the justice you will bring at the last day, we are kept from that, not because of any works of righteousness we've done, but because of your mercy you save us. And so may, may you, God, be our God. Our God is Yahweh, a faithful covenant-keeping God, faithful to every blessing, faithful to every curse. You are merciful and you are just. You are holy and you are loving. And so lead us forth from this place, Father, placing all of our trust and hope in you and seeking to live lives according to your law and promise that bring you praise, that speak the truth to the nations, and that long for the appearing of your Son, Jesus Christ, our better King, a better Naboth, a better servant, a better friend. And we ask all these things in his name. Amen.